If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah to chapter 16. We should start on verse 17, but it begins with the word for. What does for mean? Because, because which means we have to look back to see what. Verse 16, behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord. Why, there's no fish in heaven? No, these are the fishermen of men, fishers of men. And they shall fish them, and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. What's he looking for Redeemed. with the fishermen and the hunter men? Redeemed people. Redeemed people, the saved, to bring them into the kingdom. That's correct. Verse 17 says, For because my eyes are on all their ways. What does that mean? He sees everything we do. Uh-oh. But if we turn off the lights, does he still see? Yep, he still sees. Since they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of the detestable and abominable idols. So does that mean God is going to judge people who participate in idolatry? It most certainly does. And when it says in verse 18, And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, which means before they come to the Lord, before they repent as a people in the tribulation period, they're going to have how many captivities each? Two. Two. That's right, this is a foreshadowing of the Babylonian captivity and then the Roman diaspora. What about the northern kingdom of Israel? They've been gone for 2,700 years now. Well, they went in the Assyrian captivity, and any that had come back into the land went out in the Roman diaspora. So he says, I will pay double for their iniquities, talking about two captivities, first Babylon and then Rome. And isn't there another scripture where maybe we've studied in the past where it says, I have repaid double? Yep. I mean, he he fulfills his word. He does. He fulfills his words. But notice that with the warning of judgment comes the comfort of, but eventually you will repent and come back to me. And then I will gather you into the kingdom. Did God ever take pleasure in the death of an unrighteous person? No. What does he want all of us to do? To repent. Give me a verse. Okay, 2 Peter 3. I know which verse he's referring to. Oh, he's right on the point. I know he is. Yep. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that he should perish, but what does he want? that all should come to repentance. And the next verse is, but. He would accept everyone if everyone would repent, but why will not some people repent? Revelation 16 says they are so hardened in their sins that they just don't want to give up that sin and repent. And they know in Revelation 16 that the judgments are coming from God and they curse God to his face. And it says specifically they refuse to repent. Does the word they repent mean to 
change their mind about Yeshua? No, it says what? Repent from their murders or idolatries, etc., etc., the sexual immoralities. Oh, my, my, my. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 16. So verse 18 said, First I will pay double for their iniquity and their sin. There's the two captivities. Because they have defiled my land. What does it mean defiled? Broken his law. They've broken his law. They've made it unclean. Yeah, land has blood. They've shed blood, innocent blood. They have committed all kinds of gross idolatry and sexual immorality. And that defiles, he doesn't say, and have defiled their land. It says, and they've defiled my land. That piece of land we call today Israel belongs to God. And God is very specific that that is his out of all the earth. Says they have filled my inheritance with all carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. Wait a minute. Idols are wood, sticks, well, that's kind of the same thing, or stone or metal. They don't have carcasses. So, what do they mean by carcasses? Do they mean all the animal sacrifices to the pagan gods? Yes, that certainly defiles the land. There's a play on word in Hebrew. We're going to talk about some of those tonight, but give me this one. Uh, in, verse 18, where it says in verse 18, where it says defiled. Hebrew word, halal. Hebrew word is halal, which is very close to halal. Halal, yeah. halal with an H sound is praise. Halal with a C-H sound is defiled. So Profane. Yeah, believe it or not, that was going to come up tonight anyway. You just think like I think. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. What's that, Bob? He caught it in an earlier verse. Yeah. Um, I, there's a verse coming up where there's more than one in a verse. So, okay. Verse 19. Uh-oh. It says, oh, Lord. Of course, you know there's no O. Oh. That's just there for translators, making them feel good. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord, my strength and my fortress. What does a fortress mean? Protection. It's a protection from the enemies. That's right. So the strength that we have comes from the Lord. The protection we receive comes from the Lord. And the Lord taught us to pray what? Lord, protect us from the evil one. He is our strength and our fortress. My refuge in the day of affliction. When you look at the day of affliction as referring to the tribulation period, how is God my refuge? He puts his hedge protection around his people. <laughs> yeah, those that take the mark, the plague falls on them. But where does the prophet plan to be in the day of affliction with the Lord. Keep your finger here, and I know I didn't record what I said in the beginning, but turn back to Isaiah 26 because it's still sticking in my craw. Isaiah 26 verse 19 
Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they will arise. Who's the my? That's Isaiah. When the rapture and resurrection comes, where does Isaiah say he's going to be? With the Lord. It says, Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers. A chadar is a bridal chamber. Who goes into the bridal chamber with the bridegroom? The bride. So if Isaiah says, I'm going to be going with the raptured and resurrected people into the wedding chambers with Messiah, yeah, that pretty much says they're going in the rapture and resurrection, doesn't it? And shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. So they're going into the bridal chambers before the tribulation period pours out the judgments both of God and the false messiah. Quoted where that prophet, no, professor you quoted earlier. Yeah. He must not have read this. I'm suspecting not, since it's Old Testament. Yeah, well, since it says the opposite of what he said. Yeah. But this reference here, come my people, enter your chambers. There's a New Testament reference for that. And what is that? That's in John chapter 14. That's right. So let's go to John chapter 14. We mentioned John 14, 16 a few minutes ago. It's that very same chapter. Messiah does not discuss the rapture in Matthew chapter 24. It's in John 14. Start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And then I got a big asterisk that the publishers put in the Bible and say, well, it's not really mansions. What is it? It's the bridal chambers. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Um, let me ask an obvious question. This one doesn't even get a nickel, it's so obvious. Is Messiah talking here to Jewish people or to Gentile peoples? He's talking to Jewish peoples. This is before or after his death, burial, and resurrection. It's before. So when he says, I'm coming to get you, you can believe it. And he's going to take us where? To the many bridal chambers in the Father's house. That is before the seven-year tribulation period. That's the reference in Isaiah 26. Because if it was post-tribulation, where is Messiah post-tribulation period? On earth. So he's going to take us up to heaven to live for eternity while he's here on earth because the scripture says we will always be with the Lord. That's where? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Yep. Okay, back to Jeremiah. We're in a section of Jeremiah chapter 16 that really strikes home, it does. So, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you. The who shall come? The Gentiles shall come from the ends of the earth and say, 
Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. So these are the Gentiles at the end of the age that are going to repent and turn back to God. Put away the idols, put away all the false teachings, put away the immoralities and the lawlessness, if you'll allow me that term, and embrace God. Yeah, our fathers have inherited deception, right? Falsehood. So it's like falsehood, yeah. So I mean that ties it right back to false teaching. That ties it right back to false teaching. What they're saying is our fathers taught us wrong. And if they don't repent, does God say, Well, okay, if you were taught wrong? Matthew twenty three. Let's go look at it. Matthew chapter twenty three. There are people who say God is such a loving God, he doesn't care if you're an idol worshiper. Where's that in the scripture? He says, I'm a jealous God. He says, how many times? Over and over again, doesn't he? In one place he says, my name is jealous. Go to Matthew 23, 15 for the point that Daniel was making. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By hypocrite, does he mean a genuine believer? He means just the opposite. Somebody who pretends to be righteous and they're not. If you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, what's a proselyte? Is that a prize you win at a fair? No, it's a Gentile convert to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So is it any excuse that we were taught wrong? Not according to the scriptures. Even Romans 1 says creation itself tells us testifies of God so we are all without excuse. You're absolutely correct. It's my Tanakh who says these verses offer a great promise and that is that the Gentiles will repent and turn to the Lord. Before it's too late. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39 will begin in verse 7. Are you ready? Thumbs up. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. That word nations means what? The Gentile world. So God is, yes, trying to call Israel back to himself in the tribulation period, but he's also trying to get the Gentiles to repent and come back to him. There are so many theologians out there that teach that the tribulation period has nothing to do with the Gentiles. 
God is simply pouring out his judgment on the Jews because they have been such bad people throughout history. Is there any truth to that? None. The purpose of the tribulation period, as we saw in 2 Peter chapter 3, is to bring people to God, whether Jew or whether Gentile. I'm still here in Ezekiel 39. When we see that very last sentence of Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 8. It says, this is the day of which I have spoken. Verse 8 begins, surely it's coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. He doesn't say what day, he assumes we know. At what day do the people of all the nations of the world turn and recognize God and Messiah. It's in the day of the Lord. So even though he didn't say in that day or in the day of the Lord or in the day of Jacob's trouble, we know from the context the day in which he speaks. He says, this is the day of which I have spoken. Spoken where? Where did he speak about it? It's all through the scriptures. Let's just take one. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 lets us know what nations are going to come up and serve and worship the Lord. Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 2. says, Now it shall come to pass in the acharit mean the end of days, which is the Jewish way of saying the Messianic kingdom, that the mountain Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Ah, all nations shall flow to it, which means what judgment has already taken place when this is fulfilled? The sheep and goat of Matthew 25. The sheep were the Gentile nations that repented and turned to God. The goats were the ones who did not. And the ones who repented and turned back to God were brought into the kingdom. Those who were the goats who refused to repent are off into Sheol to await the day of the Lord's fiery judgment at the end called the white, great white throne judgment. Verse 3 of Isaiah 2 says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. What do we keep seeing in the Bible that's wrong when the people walk according to what? Their own ways. So they're coming up to say, Teach us your ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Messiah himself will teach the Torah when we're in Jerusalem, in the kingdom. Who better to teach it than the one who wrote it, huh? And the one who lived it. The one who explained it. Let's look also at Isaiah chapter 19. Beginning in verse 18. I like this portion of Isaiah. Isaiah 19, starting in verse 18, it says, In that day, oh, now we know when. What day? In the day of the Lord. Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. What is that? Koine Greek? 
Uh, no, Hebrew. And will swear by the Lord of hosts. Why would they swear by the Lord of hosts? Because they acknowledge him as the true and only God. What will be called the city of destruction? In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. You've all watched the movie The Exodus, right? And it's the children of Israel with the mixed multitude as they're filing out of Egypt, they go between two pillars. Remember that in the movie? Those two pillars mark the edge of the Egyptian um, borders and those pillars are there to show who the gods are of that nation. So that's what the pillars are set up for so that anyone coming into the nation will know we worship and you got to look on a sign to see. Verse 20, and it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and he will send them a savior and a mighty one and he will deliver them. John, I wonder who that Savior would be. There's only one. That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Verse 21, Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and healed them. Verse 23 says, in that day there will be a highway. That highway's got a name. It's called the Via Maris. From Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. If you remember when we studied the events of Hanukkah, the Assyrians and the Egyptians kept going to each other's land. But for what purpose? To whip up on each other. To make war. That's not why they're coming in the kingdom. They're coming in the kingdom to worship together. Verse 24 says, In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. In other words, all three nations, Assyria, Israel, and Egypt, will worship the Lord our God with one voice. Isn't that cool? Verse 25, Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 16, verse 17. That was our starting point tonight. We made it up to 19 and 20. Why do the sages of old say this refers to the Gentiles repenting and turning to God and turning away from the idols? Because it says the Gentiles shall come to you. They're coming to him because they want to worship him, because they want to serve him. And they recognize that they have been wrong, that they have been sinful. Their idolatry was an offense to God and they Repent of it. And verse 20 goes on and says, Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? That's part of the response of these Gentiles that have come to faith. 
is to say, what a foolish thing is that, that we ever made idols for ourselves. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 23. If there's anyone out there thinking, ah, there's no idolatry in the world today, I would say you need to watch the news more. How many schools now have Satan's clubs as after-school activities at their schools? Unfortunately, more and more. And now it's even starting to happen in what are supposed to be Christian schools. But Exodus chapter 20, verse 23 says, You shall not make anything to be with me, Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Is God tolerant of idolatry? No. Is it one of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, look at verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Some people misunderstand this and say, well, you can't make an elephant out of clay or something. That's not what this is talking about. It's about making an image that you worship, that you bow down to. In the tabernacle and later the temple, there's a laver with which you wash your hands. What does it sit on? On bulls. Yep. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, that's the lawlessness, of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. God does not charge a child with the father's sins unless the child continues the sin. That's what he means of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Hmm. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 4. Oh, I know what I forgot. They can just take those idols and sprinkle a little holy water on them, and then they're good, right? No. No, this is called syncretism. God said, don't use the things the pagans use to worship their gods to worship me. Don't do it. Don't do it. Leviticus 19, verse 4. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. Is that kind of clear? Seems to me. Let's add to that, starting in verse 1 of Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, what does that word saying mean? It's a quote. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel. What portion of it? All of it. What about those that weren't born Jews? They're still included, which is most of them at that point. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see that again in Leviticus chapter 11, right? About the clean and unclean foods. That's where he said it first. Here it's repeated. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's repeated again. So whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Boy, he sure puts a lot of emphasis on the Sabbath. I'm glad the word Sabbath doesn't appear in the New Testament. About 60 times. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah chapter 37. Starting in verse 18. Isaiah 37 beginning in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. Even the Assyrians knew that these idols were nothing, except their own, of course. The others, they said, oh, those are just sticks and stones and pieces of metal. Ours are the real gods. And they were wrong. Let us go back to Jeremiah and read verse 21. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. He's talking about during the tribulation period, God's going to demonstrate his might so clearly that even the pagan Gentiles will see. Can you imagine the sight at the time of the Battle of Gog and Magog when God just literally destroys all those invading armies? That's what he's talking about here. He is going to demonstrate his hand and his might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord, that it's not the names of their gods. Okay, chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. Uh Uh-oh. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. Where is the sin of Judah written? On the tablet of their heart. Where are God's commandments supposed to be written? Upon our hearts. So what is God writing upon their hearts? The commandments that they are breaking when it should be the commandments that they're keeping. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32. Circumcision in the heart is not just a New Testament concept. It goes all the way back to the Torah. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. We'll start with 45. Because it gives us a little background. 
Moses finished speaking all these words to Israel. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Does he say set your minds to? Set your feet to? It says set your heart to. What does that mean? To set your hearts on all the words I testify? Write them on your heart. Obey them out of love, out of faith. Because you love the Lord. You're so grateful for what he's done for you, how he's delivered you. That you want to live for him. Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. What do you know about Ezra? He helped to teach the people the Torah. He led the children of Israel that were going back to rebuild the temple, right? Yep, that's this Ezra. Verse 10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Again, Ezra didn't prepare his library, not his laptop. He prepared his heart. If we go back to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1, there should not be room on the heart for the sins of Judah to be written. But it's a blank slate. They didn't put the law on their hearts. And that's why there's a blank slate waiting for God to write their sins with the point of a diamond. Huh. What was that? If you think about it, diamonds are what we use in industry today to cut. They're the hardest thing. They're the hardest thing. Right. So go to Psalm 37. Yeah, when the hearts are so hard, it takes something like a diamond to mark it. Psalm 37. Verse 31. Psalm 37, verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. We got to know who his is. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom. So the law of God is written on the hearts of the righteous. Hmm. Just makes me think of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where it says in verse 33 that the law will be written upon our hearts 
if we're in the new covenant. You keep thinking back to Deuteronomy 10. Where it talks about the essence of the law. It's what? God has always desired that you love him and keep his commandments. That the commandments be written, that the commandments be written on your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10 also talks about circumcision of the heart, and that is God's desire. Circumcision of the flesh is a sign of a covenant. Circumcision of the heart is a sign of salvation. That's the type of circumcision it mentions all throughout Deuteronomy. That's been God's desire from the very beginning, is that we would take his commandments to heart. What is the sign of our faith? It's our obedience. What is the sign of a lack of faith? It's a disobedience. Psalm 40, verse 8. He chose the sign that we worship God to be keeping his Sabbath in Exodus chapter 31, starting in verse 12. But the majority of people who call themselves believers don't keep Sabbath, right? God said, here's the sign you worship me, and they don't. But now, wait a minute. How do we know that he meant he wanted Gentiles to keep the Sabbath too? Well, in Isaiah 56, it says specifically that if you want to be in the kingdom, you're going to be keeping Shabbat. Yep. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. Whoops, I got two questions out here. Let me see. What is the sign of the new covenant? Circumcision of the heart. Uh huh. Ah, that was the essence of his question. Yep. He said, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. That's circumcision of the heart. And keep a finger in Psalm and turn up to 1 John chapter 2. And let me add a little bit to that answer. 1 John chapter 2. In many Bibles, including the online Bibles that I use when I study, there is a title over verses 3 and 4 and following, and that is the test of knowing him. Do you know him? It says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him. And John 17, 3 says, To know him is to have eternal life. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If you do not keep the commandments, that's called what? Lawlessness. And what did Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 say? Come judgment day for those that are practicing lawlessness. Depart from me, I never knew you. So to keep his commandments is circumcision of the heart. God bless you. So those can be used interchangeably. God bless you. Back to Psalm 40 verse 8 because I know I haven't done that one yet. Every one of the feasts and festivals, I start with Psalm 40, verse 7. 
which tells us that all of the Bible is about Messiah. But verse 8 is the one that's really relevant here. It says, I delight to do your will, O God. Who's the I in this verse? It's Messiah. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Where in the scriptures does it tell us that when Messiah comes, his delight would be in the law of the Lord? That's Isaiah chapter 11. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord means he's going to obey God's commandments. What does it mean, though, his delight is in the fear of the Lord? It's his heart's desire. He's obedient to God because he loves God. And that's what he expects of us. That dovetails right into what we said with Ezra. It says he, he set his heart. It says he set his heart on it. To seek after the law of God. That's having a heart like Messiah. That's what Messiah wants us all to be. It's one who follows after God. Because we want to. Because we appreciate what God has done for us. How he, uh, how he saved us. And, uh, you know, that, that's exactly what Paul means. That's exactly what Paul means when he says. Imitate me as I imitate Messiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. Right, we would be in good company. But, keep your finger in Isaiah. Do we even get to Isaiah 51 yet? Well, turn to Isaiah 51, then put your finger there. Ah, you got ten fingers. And as you're holding a finger in Jeremiah and one in Isaiah, let's go up to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. It begins, but to the Son, he says, the Son is Messiah, he is God. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God calls Messiah God. Yeah, we understand that. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Righteousness is the opposite of what? Lawlessness. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. How does Messiah feel toward righteousness? He loves it. Toward lawlessness? He hates it. So what does he want his children to be? Imitators of him. Therefore, ones who love righteousness and hate lawlessness. Go back to Isaiah 51 now. That way you can have one of your fingers back. Isaiah 51, verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. 
you people in whose heart is my law. So here, God defines those who know righteousness as those who in their heart has his law, his Torah. Do not fear the reproach of men or be afraid of their insults. Does God think that if we obey him, people are going to give us a hard time? And he's right, isn't he? Absolutely true. Turn back to Jeremiah. He told his disciples, they're going to persecute you because they persecuted me first. Back to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 2. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Oh, man. Turn back to Deuteronomy 6. What were parents supposed to do regarding the law and their children? They're supposed to teach it to them when they get up and they go down. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your what? Heart. Put them in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. What's it mean diligently? It doesn't mean when your son takes the throne and they bring him a book they found called the law. He says the what? That they didn't do well. And shall Is talk that the verse that says uh, sharpen instead of teach. I'm sorry. Is oh. that the verse that says sharpen instead of teach them? Um. Is that the verse? It's one of these verses right in here. Okay, thanks. But Paul is right. When it says teach them, it means more than just a casual instruction, but really shape them, drive them home. So in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently. That word teach there is probably the one. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, what? Constantly. Constantly teach them the commandments of God. Hmm. Go to do yes, ma'am. The uh, word for uh, diligently is the word sharpen. The word diligently is the word sharpen. Okay, thank you. Let me make a note of that. I knew it was one of those words, but I wasn't sure which one. Go to Deuteronomy twelve two. Deuteronomy twelve two. Let's start with one for context. It says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God gives. The Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. So the first thing I want you to notice is to observe doesn't just mean to look at. It means to do them. To do them for how long? All the days that you live on the earth. 
That means forever. That doesn't mean till Messiah comes. It says, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. That word served is the Hebrew word avad, which is the word that means work. Who do you obey? What is the Hebrew word for obey? Just Shema. Mm-hmm. And it's in the phrase Shema B'Kol, but there isn't a separate verb for obey. To hear the commandment means to obey the commandment. That's why in the New Testament, Messiah keeps saying, he who has an ear to hear. That is one who has the desire to be obedient, to walk uprightly before God. Go to 1 Kings 14. Verse 23. The they refers to the children of Israel in Judah. Verse 23 says, For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Does this sound like they're teaching their children the commandments of God day in and day out? They're teaching their children pagan idolatry. That ties back to Jeremiah. Where the whole family was making the hot cross buns for the queen of heaven. That's right. Second Kings chapter 16. So in 1 Kings, where we were 14, that's the reign of, Jer- of Rehoboam. Now let's go to 2 Kings, chapter 16. I just looked at a few places through Kings to see if they did better or they did worse. What did they do? 2 Kings, chapter 16, verse 4. Oh my. Jotham is king. Verse 4 says, And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. That's referring specifically to Ahaz, who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And for that, they're about to go into captivity. Where did I say Ahaz reigned? He reigns in Jerusalem over the southern kingdom of Judah. I think I might have said in the northern kingdom. I meant the southern kingdom. These pain medicines are really affecting the mind. Okay. They do their job, don't they? Yeah. Then 2 Kings 17, verse 10. Let's have another ruler in Israel, specifically down in Judah. 2 Kings chapter 17. Verse 10. Hmm. It's hard to read some of these verses. It says, They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Do they do that in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Both. Yeah. The answer is both. 
But here we see the northern kingdom going into captivity because they refused to repent and turn back to God. What did God expect Judah to learn from that? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Next I would have had us go to Deuteronomy 6, but we just did that. When the children of Israel came back from the Babylonian captivity, that's when they started the synagogue system. Because they came back saying, we failed God because parents didn't teach their children. So we'll set up synagogues where all the men can go every week and learn the scriptures so they can go home and teach their families. And as the children grow up, they can come too. And if the fathers didn't teach them, then they can learn the scriptures. They teach them now in the synagogue, but the children resent their parents because the parents aren't teaching them. And they leave the faith. Yeah. And when we get to the book of Malachi tomorrow, we're going to see that despite the synagogue system, despite the weekly gathering together to study, Israel simply goes off the rails again, unfortunately. So back to Jeremiah 17, verse 3. What do you expect to be the result of the children of Israel practicing idolatry? Punishment. Punishment specifically? Captivity. Verse 3. O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. Yeah. Did God really mean that? That all the treasures that they have collected through the, ra the years would be taken by an invading army? Let's go back and start at Numbers, Numbers chapter 14 and see that, yeah, that's exactly what he meant. When the foreign kings conquered Israel, they stole everything of value. Kind of what war was all about back in those days, yeah. Numbers chapter 14, verse 3. Here all the congregation of Israel is weeping in the wilderness because life was hard. This is where they cry, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Verse 3 says, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? What would returning to Egypt mean? Returning to idolatry. Because Egypt is the land of idols. So they're whining that God is not doing enough for them. So they should just go back and serve the idols in Egypt. How do you think God took that kind of complaint? Verse 5 says, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces because there's a plague coming, right? That was how long it took them to decide to turn away from God and go back to pagan idolatry. They don't remember how they cried out to the Lord to deliver them from the captivity in Egypt. 
Same chapter, go to verse 31. So that's Numbers 14, verse 31 to 32. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, that is, into the promised land. And they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Turning away from God has serious consequences. Let's go to Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. These are the last few days of Moses' life. And he's trying to get the children of Israel back on the rails. And he knows that when they cross the river and he's not there that they're going to go astray. But he says in verse 39, Moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the, it says here Red Sea, but it's the Sea of Reeds, the Yam Suf. So Moses is reminding them of what happened there in the wilderness that we read about in Numbers chapter 14. Let's go also to 2 Kings. Second Kings. Chapter 21. Verse 14. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 14. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. Why would God do that? The next word is because. So he tells us, because they have done evil in my sight and provoked me to anger since the day their father came out of Egypt, even to this day. Wasn't a slip or two, was it? Wasn't a slip or two. It was a constant rejection of God. A constant assertion that I will do what I want to do and God will just have to like it. Not a good attitude. Back to Jeremiah 17, we're up to verse 4. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. The heritage is the land. So this is the promise of captivity. And I will cause you to serve your enemies. Ooh, that means they're going to be slaves wherever they go. In the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Oh my. 
What did they do to make God so angry? They're serving other gods and not obeying God himself. Let's go back to Exodus 6. You're noticing here that it says, You kindle a fire and my anger which shall burn forever. And there are scriptures that say that where God says that his anger will be appeased, like, like will be, will subside. There's and, other scriptures where say God's anger will subside. You know, and, and you think about, like, who is he so angry with? It's those that are unrepentant. It's those that yes. have no desire to repent. But who does he show kindness and mercy to? And to who is his anger? Right. So the scripture we just read that God would be angry forever is because those folks never do repent. The scriptures that say God's anger will be appeased. The appeasement is caused by repentance. What does God do when somebody repents? He forgives. And if you won't repent, enjoy the smoking section. Unfortunately, what do you do when most of the people that call themselves by God's name say the law has been abolished? We're not to follow it. It's not called repent. It's not called repentance, is it? It's called substitution. Uh, okay. Exodus chapter 6, verse 8. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. That's the reason I wanted to come here. To show that God specifically calls the land the heritage. So in the book of Jeremiah, he didn't need to say, your heritage is the land. We already know from earlier scriptures what that is. And then to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Verse 12. And gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Again, just a second witness that God gave Israel the land as a heritage, which means as an inheritance from generation to generation. But what if the United Nations says, no, it's not Israel's land. We're giving it to the Palestinians. Do they have a right to change God's promise? No, they do not. They're in deep trouble. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 4. Because the land is not the only heritage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 4. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage for the congregation of Jacob. 
So the land is a heritage, but so is the Torah a heritage. And when they refuse to follow the Torah, then they lose the ability to reside in the land. And they go into captivity. So I thought that was interesting how God makes the Torah a heritage just like the land. And they go hand in glove. Oh, interesting. But probably only to me. So let's go on. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 17. We're up to verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord. Who said it? The Lord, so we better pay attention to it. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Why would anybody trust in man? Because they can see a man. They, they, it's kind of like the king. It's kind of like the king. They want something to appease the flesh. Yep. Two other aspects to it, though. Whenever God said, you're going to get conquered, what did the children of Israel do? They would make a treaty with Egypt or another nation that they would come in and help us, support us. We don't want to repent and rely on God. We'll just give gold and silver to this other nation. They'll take care of us. Yeah, they did. They took the rest of the gold and silver and then let us go into captivity. That's what they did. And then there's the false prophets who are telling people not to listen to God's word. Do what we tell you instead. And the ultimate fulfillment of that is the false prophet in Revelation chapter 13. How does the false prophet in Revelation 13 call down fire from heaven? He has to be in the presence of the beast. But who actually has to give permission for it? Satan has to get permission from God. That's exactly where I'm going. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Yeah, kind of like the Job principle. Deuteronomy 13. Starting in verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and it gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, like calling down fire from heaven. He does. Of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Boy, the false prophet of Revelation 13 is the ultimate fulfillment of this. God says in verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you. So it's the Lord our God that allows him to perform the miracle as a test. Testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Is it not enough to say, Lord, we love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and doesn't God just take it on faith? Uh, no. Right. And Abraham in Genesis 22, he said, now I know. So verse 4 says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Shmabakolo and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So don't let somebody lead you astray with false miracles. 
Back to Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Hmm. How can the heart depart from the Lord if it was never there in the first place? Can't. So it means they were following the Lord until somebody led them astray. As in the cursing of Balaam. When he couldn't curse them, he told Balak how to get God to curse them. And how was that to get him to turn to sin? When they depart from God, then he could curse them. Yes? In verse 5, those two words for man are not the same word. Those two words for man are not the same word. The first one is? Geber. Geber. And the second? Adam. Adam. So it's like the Lord is saying, like, don't take yourself as a mighty man, a mighty warrior of God, and listen to some fleshly man and take away your faith in God. So like it's, it's saying don't bring yourself to that level. Don't take away your mighty stature as a man of God, a person of God. Yep. So that argument is essentially the same as what I made before, I think. Just more reinforcement of the same principle. You can't depart from the Lord if you didn't know the Lord in the first place. Verse 6, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. Oh, shrub in the desert. They don't do very well. Why? What are they missing? Water. Missing water, living water, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. What is man without the Holy Spirit of God? Doomed, right? Dry. Mm -hmm. And shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. Those places the children of Israel considered to be the place of demons. In a salt land, which is not inhibited. In a salt land. Boy, what grows in salt? Nothing. Nothing. Go to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Judah's in trouble. Sennacherib of Assyria is knocking on the door. In verse 21 it says, Now look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So somebody might say, why would a person ever put his faith in another person? But right here, they did it. And how well did it work out for them? Nah, they've been gone for so long, we've almost forgotten they were ever there. Go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 31. Isaiah, chapter 31. Verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses who trust in chariots because they're many. And horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So 
Isaiah says, when you're threatened by the Lord with an invading army, you have two choices. Repent and have God defend you, or go make a treaty with Egypt and trust on them to deliver you. Which is the smart move? Trust in the Lord. Because did Egypt ever deliver them when they promised? No. In my view of eschatology, the United States is Egypt in the last days. Israel looks to us for defense, for us to deliver them and to protect them. Are we going to be like Egypt and let them down? Sure looks like it. Psalm 32, verse 10. Psalm 32, verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So what do the wicked not do according to this verse? They don't trust in the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 10. Did I say something wrong? Bad reference? Okay. What does yours say? Never mind. Are you in the wrong chapter? Okay. Yep, I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> yep. Sorry. Verse 31. <laughs> I do that on occasion too, remember. We're all human. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only done that once, but okay, it happened, yep. So Psalm 32, the wicked do not trust in the Lord. So who trusts in the Lord? The righteous. And when it says to trust in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Because mercy surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, that tells us a lot, doesn't it? Stay close to those people. <laughs> yeah. God shows mercy to whom? Those who love, love me and keep. keep my commandments. So the righteous love the Lord and keep his commandments because they love him. The wicked say, nah, I'll do it on my own. Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34 is a psalm written by King David. And in verse 8 it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Again, we're looking at references to the verse that says, don't put your faith in man. Where should our faith be? Our faith should be in the Lord. Again, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And in Psalm chapter 40, Verses 1 through 4. Again, written by David. Says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear 
and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. So again, verse 4 drives home the point. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Verse 11. I love this verse. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is your defense, then what can man do to you? Nothing. Psalm 84. Oh, he might take your physical life, but hey, threaten me with heaven. Okay. Psalm 84, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, what kind of prophecy? In times. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. Does that mean still in our day and age we should trust in the Lord? More than ever. I agree with that. Now Psalm 84, verse 8, we looked at. Actually, we didn't yet. I want to see it though. Goes on with Hebrews ten twenty five. Aha, episunagogian, huh? Right. Hebrews ten twenty five. Let's go put eyes on it. Paul's way of saying the closer we get to the day of the Lord. You need to be getting closer to the Lord. That's exactly what he's getting at here. In Hebrews 10, verse 25. We'll actually start in 24 since it's a continuing sentence. My, my. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Which day? Day of the Lord. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is a word, epi-sunagogin. Epi means outside of, and sunagogin, the assembly. What does it mean, though, as is the manner of some? Some have already started leaving the synagogue, and we'll just go do our own thing, and therefore we don't have to worry about people harassing us or not liking us. And Paul says, no, no, you just keep preaching the gospel. Okay. Psalm 118. Verse 
Psalm 118, verse 8. Psalm 118 is the psalm that was being sung as Messiah was dying on the tree. Are we there? It says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Meaning what? There is no better place to put your faith and trust than in the Lord. And lastly on this topic, Psalm 146, verse 3. Psalm 146, verse 3. Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. And that son of man isn't talking about Messiah. He's talking about a human being other than Messiah. So all our faith and trust should be put in the Lord. Back to verse 7 of Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. Hmm, I wonder if we're going to go look at the same references. We'll find out. Go to 2 Kings chapter 18. Verses 1 through 5. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. What do we know about Ahaz? Was he a good king? No, he was evil. But Hezekiah is now reigning. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. It says his father David, because in Hebrew the word Av means father or any male ancestor. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nahushtan. In other words, they made it into an idol. So Hezekiah broke it. Verse 5, Now he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. How would you like that to be the way Messiah introduces you on Judgment Day? That would be a good thing. Yeah. Psalm 40, verse 4. Psalm 
Psalm 40, verse 4. We're going to have one of those play on words like Daniel talked about a few minutes ago. Psalm chapter 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Hmm. And now Psalm 71, verse 5. It says, You are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. Another good thing they have said about you come Judgment Day. Back to Jeremiah 17, verse 8, as we still have a few minutes left. For he, that is the man who puts his trust in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, as in verse 7, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Didn't we study that last week about the trees planted by the waters and how they grow? Mm -hmm. Which spread its roots by the river and will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Verses 1 through 6. Remember the songs of Israel are written here in the Psalms. So this psalm was sung many, many times. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord? Blessed is the man who doesn't participate in the sins of verse 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, meaning they're not going to survive it, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's Revelation 22. Verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What's another way to put verse 6? One who practices lawlessness, is he going to stand or fall? Oh. And he who practices righteousness, will he stand or fall? 
He will stand. I said it, it's just like Revelation 22. So let's go to Revelation 22. Verses 1 to 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So after reading that, what do we mean in Psalm chapter 1? That the one who puts his full faith and trust in God is going to be like the tree planted by the river. Does that mean we're going to be in the eternal kingdom with the Lord? Yes, it does. And is God ever slack concerning his promises? No, he is not. But, unless I'm wrong, we've run out of time. And we'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9.